1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Without a healthy mind, being happy is hard. Visit betterhelp.com slash milkshake and see if online therapy is for you.
2: Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am one of your hosts, Reza Aslan,
1: and I am the main uh, principal host, That's- Rain Wilson.
2: <laughs> yes, celebrity, celebrity, Rain Wilson. You know, Rain. Uh, You've acted in, I guess, some space-themed TV shows, right? Movies, things like that. I feel like I've feel like i seen you on TV. Seriously, don't, don't pretend you don't know my
1: IMDb credits by heart. Yes, <laughs> I was in several episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Harry Mudd. I played an alien in the movie Galaxy
2: Quest, of course. One of the all-time best sci-fi movies ever.
1: I played Fish, the drummer, in The Rocker. Sorry, I never heard of it. Well, exactly. It's it's a movie you can't find anywhere on Earth, so it's considered <laughs> kind of an outer space movie. <laughs> um, but why are you asking me all these questions?
2: So I was thinking, you know, given your uh, enormous and varied experience playing various extraterrestrial characters, that maybe you could, you know, shed a little light on a on a question that has been eating me for. Oh, nigh, 40 years now.
1: Yes, Reza, we are going to make you a red shirt on Star Trek. My agents are getting into it. We're working on it. I've told you this
2: a thousand times. Thank you. I know I keep asking on every episode when that will actually happen because that'll be the greatest thing in my life with the exception possibly of uh, the birth of my children. But then then again, we'll see. I haven't done it yet, so it might even be better. But that's not what I meant. The question that I want to ask you is this. Do you think we're alone in the universe?
1: Of course we are not alone in the universe. What a preposterous and arrogant statement. Do you mean to say that all of the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and then there's billions and billions of galaxies beyond the Milky Way galaxy? that we're the only, like, evolved life form that grew grew out of, you know, protozoa and spermatozoa to become sitcom actors? Give
2: me a break. I mean, honestly, it is a stupid question. I mean, I was trying to pretend, like, maybe it's a a question that, you know, well, there's two sides to this. There's not two sides to this.
1: Well, it's, again, it's the scientific consensus, which is, you know, in some ways good and in some ways poppycock, which
2: is well show us the proof. And it's like we don't have the proof yet. We don't have hard proof. I mean, whatever that means, but we got so much evidence of it. Just just in the the numbers alone but, that you stated, right? Just in the in the very sort of the chutzpah, the chutzpah that it takes to to even pretend that we are the only living beings in a universe that is literally infinite. (laughs) Yes. It's just insane. And this is what brings us to a fascinating
1: tidbit of information. You and I were both kind of sparked by this. Safa, one of our producers and researcher, uh, she had worked on the show Cosmos and found this uh, Kardashev scale. Yeah,
2: Kardashev scale.
1: It's a method of measuring a civilization's level of technological advancement Based on the amount of energy it's able to use, based on proposed by Soviet astronomer Nikolai Kardashev in 1964. So there's three types. Mm -hmm. Type one is can use and store all of the energy available on its own planet. So we're not there yet. We're
2: not even at type one.
1: We are a planetary species, but we haven't figured out how to use all the energy on the planet and store the energy. I mean, come on. It's solar people.
2: Come on. Then there's type two. Type two is what what uh, um, Kardashev calls a stellar civilization. That's when you can use and control energy at the scale of your planetary system. Yeah. That's like like Star Trek, right? Like like that. Like the Enterprise is a type two civilizational show.
1: Well, I would say it's. It's even, I don't know if you've seen The Expanse. It's like The Expanse, which is explores like what happens if humanity is inhabiting the solar system. Love The Expanse.
2: And then there's type Great three, show. and that's galactic civilization. That's like when you can control energy at the scale of its entire host galaxy. And so we were wondering... Okay, so in uh, these these three types, like which where are we? I actually before I read this, I thought, well, I guess we're type one. No, we're we're type zero. We're not on the scale. <laughs> we're not even we're not even there yet. Uh, the great uh, uh, physicist, um, I'm gonna fuck his name up. Michio Kaku. Yes, the great physicist Michio Kaku uh, thinks that if we're lucky. We might be able to reach type 1 status, I don't know, maybe 100, 200 years. And then he thinks we could probably hit type 2 status maybe in a few thousand years. (laughs) And then he thinks we might, if everything goes well, hit type 3 anywhere between 100,000 and a million years. So it's right around the corner.
1: But then there's proposed other levels, such as uh, type 4, which is a civilization that can control or use the energy in the entire universe, the entire universe, and then the type five civilizations that can control collections of universes or journey into multiverses. And they, according to the scientist Zoltan Galantai, argue that such a civilization could not be detected as its activities would be indistinguishable from the workings of nature itself.
2: Boom. Boom. So why are we bringing all this up? We're bringing all this up because... Okay, it might be ridiculous to say, oh, we've got a million years before we can um, achieve type three. You know, the universe is 14 billion years old, right? So, and humans, be, the, us, Homo sapiens, were what, 200,000 <laughs> years old? Mm-hmm. So, again, this idea that the first intelligent life in a 14 billion year old universe showed up 200,000 years ago is absurd to the extreme. So why wouldn't there be type 1, type 2, even type 3 civilizations in a you know f- universe that is billions and billions of years old? So this question, are we alone in the universe? Come on, people.
1: But this is a question that we can't answer. No one's going to listen to a to an actor and a and a writer talk about this. We need someone else Someone legit to step up and dig into this question.
2: Who are we going to get? It can't just be like an internationally renowned astronomer because there's, you know, there's a lot of those. It's got to be somebody with like some serious street cred. Like if we could get someone from Harvard. There you go. That would do it. Maybe someone who's like the longest serving chair of Harvard's astronomy department. Wait a minute, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about Dr. Avi Loeb.
1: The theoretical physicist who works on astrophysics and cosmology and describes himself as a somewhat accidental astrophysicist. Yes, the Israeli who grew up on a farm near Tel Aviv whose first love was philosophy.
2: The same Avi Loeb who was selected in 2012 by Time Magazine is one of the 25 most influential people in space, which is really impressive because he's not in space.
1: He's so not in space.
2: And he's one of the most influential people there.
1: We're all in space. The Earth is floating in space. All right. Okay. Thanks for fucking up
2: my joke. Folks,
1: we are so excited to have the best-selling author, Avi Loeb, author of Extraterrestrial, on the show to discuss, are we alone in outer space? Dr. Loeb, welcome to the show. We're so excited that you're here. Thanks for having me. I have to tell you that I was so excited. I'm gonna oh, I'm gonna read a book called "Extraterrestrial" by mm-hmm. a real astrophysicist. I'm so excited, and of course, your name is somewhat legendary. And I just loved this book. I loved it way, way, way more than I thought I would. I I was I felt like I was twelve years old again. So,
3: how how did you do that? Well, that's pretty much me. Uh, the way I uh, see science is as a, is a an extension of the childhood curiosity. It's a great privilege to be able to ask questions. You know, one of the most vivid memories that I have from my childhood is sitting at dinner and asking a difficult question. And then the adults in the room would pretend that they know much more than they actually do. It was <laughs> yeah. obvious. And I, uh, I know what that's like. But, but, but by the way, this was the good situation. Uh, the worst situation was when they simply dismissed the question because they would say, you know, they would say to themselves, they don't know the answer. So they rather say the question makes no sense. Therefore, they move on to their comfort zone. And uh, and and then I decided to become a scientist because it offers the privilege of, you know, perhaps addressing these questions. And guess what? I received tenure at Harvard University. For nine years, I've been the longest serving chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. And I face a very similar situation. It's not as if Uh, going to academia improved the conversation. There are still a lot of my colleagues that are pretending they know much more than they actually know. And they dismiss a question to which they don't know the answer. That's pretty much, uh,
2: yeah, that's pretty much academia in a nutshell. You went to Harvard. You know, interestingly, uh, just a fun fact about this particular uh, podcast episode that two of the three people on it um, uh, I went to Harvard, um, and, oh. and one of us, one of us did not. Uh, I'm talking about Rain, by the way. Rain, <laughs> Rain, Rain went to Santa Monica Community College. It's referred to as the Harvard of Santa Monica,
3: right? Well, the places you go to are not a reflection of um, your 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 yourself in a way. I mean, not uh, true. Of course, you benefit from being around, but uh, you know, the most important thing is. Um, really uh, what you make of yourself rather than uh, the places you go to.
1: Thank you. Thank mm. you. Two of the three of us are internationally recognized, enormous celebrities.
2: Thank you. Um, Thank you, Raymond. I, I really but appreciate Love, that. But, Dr. Loeb,
1: I studied clowning. So I literally, like, studied <laughs> clowning. I, like, I wore a nose. On he went face. to a
2: clown college. And I'm not talking about Princeton. Oh! Hey!
1: So you got a lot of attention, Dr. Loeb, from the the unorthodox, shall we call them, theories about an interstellar object that passed through our solar system a while back, called Oumuamua. You don't have a there's pictures in here, but um, we can show a picture maybe up on the screen up here on YouTube. Um, So let's start at the very beginning. What is and what was for those listeners who don't know what was Oumuamua. And why do you think it may be a sign of extraterrestrial life?
3: Well, Oumuamua was uh, the first object that we spotted near Earth that came from outside the solar system. And we knew that it came from outside because it was not bound to the sun. It, it moved too fast to be bound to the sun. All the previous objects we saw in our vicinity are bound to the sun. Like, for example, the Earth moves around the sun and so, so are the rest of the planets. And asteroids and comets that we see all the time. But here came an object moving too fast to be bound to the sun came from outside the solar system. And uh, of course the first thought that came to the astronomer's mind was that it's just like the objects we've seen before, you know, so just like, you know, when a caveman sees a cell phone, the caveman thinks, oh, it must be a rock of the type <laughs> yeah. that I played with throughout my life. Uh Just a shiny rock, maybe a little different. So the astronomers collected data and I was among them. Um, and um, to me, it was intriguing because I didn't expect any rock to come into the solar system and be spotted by this telescope in Hawaii. Uh, Pan-stars that discovered this object. It was given the name Oumuamua because it means in the Hawaiian language, uh, a scout, a, a messenger from far away. But uh, uh, to me, it was intriguing because we calculated how many such rocks we expect to arrive, and uh, we forecasted that none would be seen by pan stars, and here there was one. Uh, and then as, uh, uh, as the astronomers discovered it, they thought it must be a comet. You know, a comet is a rock covered with ice, and when it gets close to the sun, the ice evaporates, you get a cometary tail of gas and dust around it. But there was nothing around this object, nothing visible. And then the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply, couldn't see any, uh, even traces of of carbon-based molecules. So it was clear that this is not a comet. So then astronomers said, okay, well, maybe it's just a rock without any ice on it. And then uh, the object was tumbling every eight hours. The amount of light that it reflected from the sun changed by a factor of 10. And that meant that it has a very extreme shape and uh, most likely a flat shape, pancake-like. Uh, if you were to fit the variation in reflected light. And so that was very unusual, very strange. We don't see very often objects that are 10 times longer than they're wide and are flat. You know, that we don't see rocks like that, asteroids like that. And then the most peculiar thing is, uh, as the object was moving um, near us, uh, it was pushed away from the sun um, by some force, uh, mysterious force, in addition to the force of gravity acting on it.
4: Who get it done.
3: A rocket effect to push it, Um, and uh, so the only explanation I could think of was the sunlight bouncing off its surface is giving it a push. And for that to be effective, the object had to be very thin, uh, sort of like a sail on a boat, except being pushed by reflecting sunlight. And then in September 2020, just a year ago, there was another object discovered by the same telescope that was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight with no cometary tail. And it was given the name 2020SO. And then the astronomers that discovered it a few weeks later realized it actually came from Earth. In 1966, there was a rocket booster that was launched into space as part of a lunar lander mission. And uh, it was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight because it had very thin walls. It had a large area for its mass. And and um, we know that we produce this object, 2020SO, it's artificial. The question is, who produced Oumuamua.
1: If you're anything like us, you want to win that best gift ever title this holiday season, well, we've got a secret source for you. It's Uncommon Goods. Uncommon Goods has just right gifts for all your loves and your likes. We're talking moms, dads, teens, tweens, in-laws, besties, your one and only. It's not stuff you can find just anywhere. This is Uncommon Goods. It has unique and creative gifts, often handmade by independent artists and makers. And they have gift guides to help you match the right gift to the right person. Uh, There's so much cool stuff on here. Uh, Reza, I know you're a big fan. Oh
2: yeah, are you kidding? I mean, I I have like so many nieces and nephews and they're like constantly having birthdays, which is so weird and annoying. (laughs) I actually went on on Uncommon Goods, true story. I was like, all right, I'll check this out. Like, you know, give me some ideas on common goods. And I was like, okay, so girl and, you know, age group. And I won the gift jackpot. Uh, In fact, I I don't, am I allowed to say what I got? I got this amazing karaoke mic uh, for her. And she loved it so much. True story. I've bought it like four more times. And always you should know that with
1: every purchase you make it on common goods, they give a dollar back to a nonprofit partner of your choice.
2: And here's what we got for you, dear Metaphysical Milkshake listeners. You can get 15% off your next gift when you go to uncommongoods.com slash milkshake. That's uncommongoods.com slash milkshake and you'll get 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or something preventing you from achieving your goals? You know, I personally had not gone to therapy for a while because I was like, everything's fine. I'm great. I fixed myself. And, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, I just realized, actually, I'm not as great as I thought I was. I I need some help. And uh, I found a great therapist, Rain.
1: I would love to go to a therapy session with you and your therapist. I have a few things to say. (laughs) I have a few things to share.
2: Well, no, thank you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And listen, this is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online.
1: BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors. If you don't like the one, you don't respond to the one you have. Sometimes it's a mix and match. You got to try several counselors. You're
2: not always going to hit the jackpot like I did.
1: BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today, folks. So visit their website. Read all the testimonials, amazing testimonials that are posted daily.
2: Check this out, folks. If you go to betterhelp.com milkshake, that's better H-E-L-P. Dot com slash milkshake. Not only can you join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of experienced professionals, but you can actually get a special offer. Metaphysical Milkshake listeners will get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash milkshake this is such a, a a wonderful service it's become so popular that uh, they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states so go to betterhelp.com/milkshake and you'll get 10% off your first month thanks betterhelp so the evidence indicates that umuuma may not have been a naturally occurring object It could very likely have been, um, you know, something that was made uh, by um, some extraterrestrial um, intelligence. But you think it could very well, more specifically, be a kind of solar sail, which is the thing that we, like, we have the technology to build a solar sail, don't we?
3: Yes, but not necessarily a solar Initially, I thought maybe it's a solar sail, but Uh, it could be just a thin object because 2020 SO that was, that was discovered after I finished my book, Mm. you know, was not designed as a solar sail. It was just a a rocket booster and it was thin. So the one property we know is that this object is probably thin, but we don't know the purpose of that. And it could be, for example, a receiver that is tumbling every eight hours to collect signals Mm. or it could be just like, um, you know, a trash bag uh, tumbling in the wind, you know, like uh, some uh, space junk. We don't know what it is. The point is that it doesn't look like the natural rocks we have seen before. And, and the key is that it's not a philosophical question. You see, um, it's a, we just need a, a high resolution image uh, in order to figure out the difference between a rock and an artificial object. It's just like the caveman, you know, would press a button and the, uh, Record his voice, and then press another button and record his image, and it will become clear that this uh, cell phone is not a rock. You know, it's not right. it's something else, and we just need more data. Uh, and uh, they say a photo is worth uh, an image, is worth um, a picture, is worth a thousand words. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, a picture is worth sixty-six thousand words, the number of words in my book. <laughs> I would need to write a book if we had a photograph, and right. we can get such a photograph. Uh, by identifying another object like Oumuamua on its approach to us and then get close to it, just like the OSIRIS-REx mission got close to the asteroid Bennu and actually landed on it uh, and uh, took a sample from it that it will deliver back to Earth in 2020. That was the movie with Ben Affleck, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to live forever. But, by the way, I should tell you that there were there were 30... Uh, film producers and documentary producers that approached me after my book uh, came out with interest in making something out of it, and altogether I had about twelve hundred uh, interviews over the past seven months. There, there was a lot of criticism from the scientific community,
1: and we're going to kind of dig deeper into that later on because there's there's a lot. To, at, at first blush, this is a conversation about hey, did an extraterrestrial, you know, technology based object float by planet Earth. That's on one level. That's what our conversation is about. But it it goes deeper and deeper. That's what I loved about your book. It's like peeling an onion. There's a lot of layers going on here. But just just on Oumuamua itself, there was a lot of criticism of your uh, thesis. Um, Can you describe what that criticism was and why essentially
3: they're wrong? Well, there was uh, obviously... uh, um a lot of scientists prefer to be in their comfort zone. So they would argue it's natural, end of discussion. And they wanted to establish that by authority. So there was a a, a review paper written about Oumuamua published in Nature Astronomy Magazine by a large number of people that work in this uh, field of uh, rocks in the solar system, where they basically said it's a natural object. And then several months afterwards, there was uh, a team of people that wanted to explain the anomalies of a Oumuamua not just say it's natural and they said okay well it looks like it may be a hydrogen iceberg a chunk of frozen hydrogen the size of a football field because when hydrogen evaporates it would be transparent and you can't see it so that could explain the anomalies of a Oumuamua one of the anomalies uh, and the problem with that explanation is that a hydrogen iceberg gets evaporated very quickly, so it wouldn't survive its journey through interstellar space, so.
2: And there'd be some evidence, we'd be able to see a little bit of that.
3: We've never seen a hydrogen iceberg, and this is mm-hmm. the first object we see, so there must be nurseries making such objects, mm-hmm. and they should be very common if that were the case, but this is the first one. And then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a cloud of dust particles, sort of like a dust bunny uh, that is very rarefied, a hundred times less dense than air, And uh, the problem there is when it gets close to the sun, it will be heated by hundreds of degrees and will not maintain its integrity. And then a few months later, there was a suggestion, oh, no, it's actually a nitrogen iceberg chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto. And the problem with that is the mass budget. There is just not enough nitrogen. And we just showed in a paper that we submitted uh, a few days ago uh, that uh, a nitrogen iceberg will get evaporated also very quickly as a result mm-hmm. of cosmic rays that bombard it in interstellar space within a few million years. And there is just not enough nitrogen available to make enough chunks or, or chips of that type. So my point is, all of these suggestions involve something we've never seen before. And therefore, if it's something we've never seen before, we must leave on the table the possibility that it's artificial. But the other point is, there was on initially this group of people that out of authority tried to argue it's natural. And then a few months later, it was a hydrogen iceberg. A few months later, it was a dust bunny, and then it was a nitrogen iceberg. My point is, if it was obvious from the beginning that it's natural, why didn't they say what it is? Why did you need these additional groups to come up with specific explanations? And to me, it shows that this discussion is not sincere. People want it to be natural mm-hmm. and they jump from one possibility to another. And to me that, you know, I rest my case that the uh, artificial origin needs to be considered because the scientific community that tries to assign a natural origin to it is, in, has not converged on, on a convincing explanation. And, you know, it's just like in the case. of of the caveman, the caveman initially would say, it's a rock of a different type that we've never seen before. The cell phone is something we've never seen before, but it's still a rock, because that's the natural tendency to stay in your comfort zone. And to me, you know, science should be guided by evidence. Uh, There was also a philosophical paper by a philosopher that was published in Nature Astronomy just a few months ago saying that based on philosophical reasoning, it has to be natural. And I thought to myself, haven't we learned something over the past four centuries <laughs> since the days of Galileo, when philosophers argue that the sun moves around the earth and they know that, they don't need to look through his telescope. They put him in house arrest. Today, they would have canceled him on social media. <laughs> and uh, that didn't change anything about the orbit of the earth around the sun. You know, the, the reality doesn't care what we say, how many likes we get on Twitter. You know, we can decide not to look through our windows and argue that we are alone, but that will not get rid of our neighbor.
1: This brings us to one of the big points that we wanted to cover, and it's one of the essential foundational points of your book, and that is, there was a, a tremendous kind of almost outrage uh, by a lot of scientists at your hypothesis. Anger, I would say. Perhaps, yes, anger. And then, and but then you start peeling that onion, and you get a little bit deeper, and your book goes into this in, in great length, is, um, why is there all of this scientific um, hostility, hostility. Yeah. to the idea of extraterrestrial life uh, at all? There seems to be a, a kind of like categorical, academic, um, angry resistance to a discussion and exploration of extraterrestrial life and technology
2: like it's got to be something else it has to be something it has to be something that we have never ever observed before it has to be something that there is literally no proof of its even existence before we would even bother to contemplate the possibility that it's it's extraterrestrial
3: yeah, but to me, it's a really relatively straightforward. You just need a high-resolution image that shows you that the, the cell phone is a, is a technological device and not a rock, okay? So- see, So
2: But but see, Dr. Loeb, see, this is where I disagree with you. I I, I get it. A picture is worth a thousand words. I, I can't help but think that if we got the most incredible photo of a of muamua and it looked like a flat metal pancake People would say, "Well, maybe it's something that we haven't seen before, but it's but it's this or it's that."
3: We can land on it and push press buttons. It's a learning experience, just like the cavemen would eventually learn. But let me first explain the phenomenon. You know that what we are talking about. Why is there this resistance? And the first element of that is similar to my daughters. You know, when they were young, they were at home and they thought that they are the smartest in the world, and because they compare themselves to the family members and. Then when I took them to the kindergarten on the first day in the kindergarten, you know, they were shocked to see kids that are smarter than they are. And obviously if I were to ask them, they would say, we never want to go to such a kindergarten because we prefer to continue to maintain the notion that we are smart. So obviously it touches on people's ego to imagine something superior to our civilization. You know, so they prefer not to know that. Mm. Um, and that that's aspect number one. The second one is, People prefer to stay in their comfort zone. So when you talk about evidence that will take them out of it, uh, they feel uncomfortable uh, and um, they don't want to look at that evidence. And um, I, the thing that is frustrating to me is that there is this conser- uh, this conservative approach uh, uh, about Oumuamua. But at the same time, you have a whole culture of theoretical physics, which is based on notions that were never tested. Such as extra dimensions, the multiverse, Mm -hmm. string theory, and that is accepted as part of the mainstream because people can do intellectual gymnastics, mathematical manipulations that demonstrate that they are smart, and they actually prefer not to have experimental tests because then they don't put any skin in the game; they cannot be proven wrong. Big news in shoes, folks.
1: Rothies is now selling men's sneakers and men's driving loafers. Even more big news. They just launched premium merino wool shoes for fall, and today it is in the fall. Merino wool is nature's perfect material, soft, comfortable, machine washable, and sustainable, available in cool colors and classic styles you'll want to wear everywhere.
2: And if that wasn't enough, Rothy's just launched their first ever collection of accessories for men. We're talking wallets, carry bags, card cases. Rothy's is all your everyday carry essentials. No more worrying about keeping your wallet clean after weeks of wear. Rothy's wallets are fully machine washable too, Rain.
1: Rothy's men's shoes are made from 100% recycled materials. Even the laces. No wonder that Rothy's best-selling men's shoe, the Driving Loafer in Navy, gets a five-star review from almost every customer. And I, I'm not wearing them right now. I can't show them show them off to you, but-
2: Because you're not driving.
1: You don't have to be driving to wear the driving loafer in Navy, although that's a good idea. I wanted to see what all the five-star reviews were about. I ordered a pair. And yes, indeed, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a loafer guy, but they're so comfortable.
2: So to help you welcome fall season in style, Rothy's is doing something special. That's right. They gave us the chance to share this super rare opportunity with our listeners for a limited time. Right now, you can get 20 bucks off your first purchase if you go to Rothys.com slash milkshake. That's R-O- dot slash Milkshake. Head to rothys.com slash Milkshake to
4: find your new favorites today. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies.
5: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BTW
3: group. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. My point is simple, you know, and that is Bernie Madoff. Uh, if, um, you know, Bernie Madoff had the beautiful idea that if you give him money, he will make more of it irrespective of what the stock market does. And it was bu- a beautiful idea for him because people gave him money. It was a beautiful idea for the people that gave him the money because otherwise they would never give him the money. But when did things go wrong when those people asked for their money back? At that point, he was put in jail. And that was an experimental test of a beautiful idea. So my point is, experimental tests are not a nuance. They are really fundamental for the way we learn about reality. And uh, and if you don't want to be trapped in a Ponzi scheme, you have to have experiments that test your ideas. So you have this community of, theoretical physicists that believe in ideas that cannot be tested in their lifetime, and that is accepted as part of the mainstream of physics. And at the same time, you have a conservative community of astronomers that are not willing to look at evidence that looks anomalous and allow for the possibility that we are talking about an artificial object, which is basically saying, oh, maybe there is something like us somewhere else, you know. So that, to me, is not very speculative, if you ask me. But for them, it sounds really extraordinary. Okay. But the point is it should remain as a possibility on the table that something like us exists elsewhere because we see planets like the earth elsewhere. You know that yeah. it's not such a stretch and it's not as much of a stretch as talking about extra dimensions that we've never seen before. Right. Right? So, how can the two communities exist, coexist It's because both of them don't want to pay attention to evidence. The one that of, the, yeah. the of theoretical physics doesn't want evidence because it will basically could prove it wrong. And the second community of conservative scientists prefer to stay in their comfort zone. They don't want to look at anomalous evidence. So both of them have a common thread running uh, between them, and that is let's not pay attention to evidence. And uh, I find that problematic because science is supposed to be guided by evidence, and we are talking about people in academia that are supposed to be open-minded, you know, then you have the government talking about objects that are not understood that perhaps could be extraterrestrial in origin. So the government, the most conservative organization is talking about it. How is it possible that scientists would not talk about it? So, yeah. um, you know, so that, I think, is the underlying um reason for why. I, now, there is also the fact that the public cares about it so much. And there is science fiction, uh you know, literature that says nonsense about this subject. Some of it, not all of it. And my point is, you know, a thousand years ago, there were people saying nonsense about the human body. They were saying the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should be forbidden. Now, imagine if scientists would say, okay, this is a controversial subject. Some people say nonsense about it. We don't want to discuss it at all. We don't want to deal with the human body, forget about it. Let's just ask how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin. That's a fascinating question. We can show that we are smart. We don't want to do anatomy. Suppose that was the approach, just like string theory today. So if that were the approach, where would modern medicine be? We would not have our understanding of the human body. So my point is, even if people say nonsense on a subject, that doesn't mean that the subject should be banned from scientific discussion we can approach this subject in a scientific fashion. For example, we can collect better data that will clarify the nature of an object like Oumuamua, the nature of unidentified aerial phenomena. Let's approach it as scientists.
2: Yeah. You know, this is what I love about uh, the book, Extraterrestrial, and and this whole argument um, about Oumuamua, because in many ways it becomes a kind of proxy for this larger debate. That you just laid out about the scientific process, you know. Rain and I, believe it or not, are not scientists. I know it's it's shocking. We, <laughs> Crazy. We have such scientific. I could minds. do. I could play a scientist clown.
3: Yes. Yes. You well, are. You might not be very different from some of my colleagues.
2: <laughs> oh, so, look at
1: that. <laughs> Hello. And by the way, I love that you've compared scientists to kindergartners, A and B, Bernie Madoff. And now clowns. <laughs> also, That's also fantastic. cavemen. Also
2: a little bit of caveman. <laughs> um, but but you know, what are one of the sort of basic, most obvious principles, you know, about science that we learn all the way back in grade school is this notion of Occam's razor, which is, you know, the simplest solution is often the most, you know, uh, correct solution. and But here's the thing that... And what, what gets me is that the simplest and most likely answer is that we are not alone in the universe. The, the simplest and most likely answer is that, um, you know, the, out of the hundreds of billions of habitable planets, you know, in the universe a tiny percentage of them has to have some kind of life. Maybe it's not intelligent life. It could be microbial life. But even that in and of itself is revolutionary. You put it in an interesting way in the book. You say, just the mere fact of the existence of intelligent life on earth, forget about all everything else, just the fact that there is intelligent life on earth, that's enough of a justification for the search of life elsewhere. So in a way, I guess what I mean is, shouldn't the, the the most basic scientific postulate be that, that we're not alone in the universe? Yeah. And you, that, I mean, isn't that where we should start? We should probably start there. We should start with, we're more than likely not alone in the universe. Now let's observe objects and let's make theories about them.
3: Right. I mean, we tend to believe that we are special, unique, and important. And uh, the truth is that whenever we tested that, it ended up being wrong. So we thought that we are at the center of the universe. Uh, you know, The ancient Greek philosopher, Aristotle, had a world model of that type, and people believed him for a thousand years because it flattered their ego. But now we know that the universe is 10 to the power, 26 times bigger than our body, and we are not at the center of it, uh, of this stage. Uh, and moreover, you know, we are like actors born, uh, put on a stage. Um, and the, the stage is huge. We are not at the center of it. And the play has been going on for 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. So it's clearly not about us. And moreover, from the Kepler satellite, we now know that about half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So even what we find in our backyard is not unique to us. So how dare we think that there is nothing like us or nothing existed like us in the past? You know, most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And actually, it's sufficient to have one uh, that developed uh, a technological civilization like ours that predated us by a billion years. Because we are currently using artificial intelligence systems to drive cars, They will make medical decisions in the future. Just imagine sending an AI system into space that is equipped with the ability to uh, repair damaged parts and perhaps replicate itself out of raw materials that it finds on another planet. So if we had that, within a billion years, we can pretty much populate all the habitable planets in the Milky Way galaxy. There is enough time in a billion years. just imagine that being done by another civilization that predated us by a billion years. So by now we might be living in, in such a reality. And the only way to find out whether this is our reality or not is to look through telescopes, to look at the sky and try and figure it out. And it most likely it's not, we're not talking about the living creatures that are spying on us. Mm-hmm. We're talking about AI system, technological equipment that perhaps outsmart us. And it's small, you know, it's small pieces that are difficult for us to to see with our, you know, with our eyes. And we need telescopes to find them. And and uh, we should just search, you know, look for the answers through our telescopes. That's a very simple scientific approach rather than assuming that we know the answer in advance. And I'm really surprised that on such an important issue, because if we find even one such system in our vicinity, it will change our future. It will change the way we perceive ourselves uh, in the cosmic uh, context. It will change the way we relate to each other. Because if you think about it, you know, most of human history was shaped by some people trying to feel superior relative to other people. Uh, the best example is the Second World War, where the Nazi regime uh, uh, triggered the death of 75 million people. That was 3% of the world population in 1940. Uh, and uh, it's 20 times more than the number of deaths caused by COVID-19. That was just a group of people deciding to feel superior over over everyone else. Um, and so if we find evidence for an, a civilization that is far more advanced than all of us, all of our genetic differences will become laughable, you know, that they are not significant. And the Nazi doctrine saying that some people are superior relative to other people, that would look ridiculous. And perhaps we will treat each other with more respect as equal members of the human species. You know, there were searches in the past, for example, in the past 40 years, since the time I became an an astrophysicist, we have, we've been searching for most, what is most of the matter in the universe? You know, we don't know what it is. It's called dark matter. And one very favorable candidate was weakly interacting massive particles. We invested hundreds of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. searching in the dark, haven't found anything. Now that, if the dark matter was weakly interacting massive particles, that would have very little impact on our daily lives. But if we find that Oumuamua was a technological relic, that would have a huge impact on our daily life. So my question is, how is it possible that we invested hundreds of millions of dollars for decades on the search for dark matter, whereas we invested nothing on the search for relics? And that's what the Galileo project that I established a couple of months ago, that's what it's meant uh, to, to do. Isn't this your meaning, is that if we were to have
1: indisputable uh, proof that there was extraterrestrial life in some way, like, what did you call it? Um,
3: yeah, relics, yeah.
1: Yeah, a rel- a extraterrestrial relic. I love that idea, you know, floating by planet Earth or something. It's like Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama, which was one of my first and favorite uh, science fiction books. You must love that book.
3: Well, yeah. And I should tell you a, an anecdote because I established this Galileo project and then a historian, a colleague of mine from Harvard named uh, Erez Manela pointed out that the name Galileo is derived from, uh, Galilee, you know, the Northern part of Israel. Sure. And uh, then some, when I mentioned it to the team, the research team of the Galileo project, someone pointed out, actually in Hebrew, Galilee means a cylinder. That's the meaning of it. And, you know, that's my mother's tongue, Hebrew. I should have thought about it, but I haven't thought about it. Uh, So it's a cylinder. And then the connection, of course, with rendezvous with Rama, that was a cylindrical object, and Oumuamua that was very elongated, and also 2020 SO that I mentioned before, the rocket booster was cylindrical. So we are talking about cylindrical objects, and it turns out there is a connection to the name Galileo. But isn't what you're saying is that if we were
1: to find extraterrestrial relic of some kind, the conversation immediately shifts big time from, oh, our nation is better than your nation or Russia is this and China versus the U.S. here and, you know, and, and climate change. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, seven billion human beings go, oh, fuck, we're a species We're a species on a planet and we have planetary issues in front of us and there are other species on other planets and they have their planetary and, you know, uh, galaxial issues in front of them. But it just, it changes the entire human conversation.
3: Exactly. And, uh, you know, it it was uh, originally a matter of um, national security when the intelligence agencies looked at these unidentified aerial phenomena. But then, uh, they decided that they cannot understand them, and they reported to Congress that their nature is not clear. And from a matter of national security, it could become a matter of international security, or, you know, a matter of international concern or, or concern, or, or, yeah. yeah, interest, mm-hmm. uh, interest, and uh, you know, we will have to figure out the intent of those things if they came from outside Earth, and. But of course, it could be or it could also have some mundane explanation. So, in the Galileo project, what we are trying to do is figure out the nature of objects that come close to Earth that look different than anything we've seen before. So, Mm. it's an interstellar object like Oumuamua that doesn't look like a comet or an asteroid. We want to find it early enough so that we can send a camera that will take a close up photograph of it or even land on it and press some buttons. If uh, it's an unidentified aerial phenomena, uh, we want to have telescope systems that get a megapixel image of such a thing so that we can read off the label made on exoplanet Y (laughs) and and distinguish it from made in China or made in Russia. Because if it's human-made, it's very boring to me. I mean, I'm willing, I'm happy to have automatically uh, the computer system transfer the data to residents of Washington DC if it looks like it's human-made. Or if it looks like a bird, you know, I'm not a zoologist. I, I'm happy to transfer the data directly to people interested in birds. The Audubon Society. Yeah. The point is the Galileo, the Galileo Project will try to figure out the nature of such objects and, and have the data open to the public. The analysis will be transparent and just the way science operates. Pulling back 20,000 feet view,
1: what would it mean to humanity? What would it mean? to you, what would it mean to people struggling with a belief in God or some kind of higher power? What would it mean to, on the largest possible level, for for you, for humanity to have total certainty that there is extraterrestrial life and then in some way, shape or form, they're close by?
3: Well, I should say that a few days ago, I got an email from a rabbi. Uh, of a congregation in uh, Michigan, in uh, Ann Arbor, who said that he dedicated his sermon for the high holidays to my book, Extraterrestrial. Hmm. He was talking about it and the implications of the theme of the book hmm. uh, to the religious beliefs of his uh, congregation. And, um, and I realized at that point that uh, it implies that, you know, this subject has uh, very strong connections to our existential questions. Um, and um, for example, uh, what are the big questions that we face? Uh, what is the meaning of life? Okay. Uh, is there a meaning to life? And of course, if we find extraterrestrials that uh, existed for much longer than our recorded history, you know, our recorded history is only 10,000 years old at best, and uh, if they existed for millions of years or more than that, they have a better perspective about the meaning of life. You know, they might be able to explain to us what's going on. Um, another question is, uh, what happens after death? You know, and, uh, and that question may lose its relevance or its urgency if they know about technologies that can prolong our lives to be thousands of years, millions of years. We would not worry so much about death at that point. Uh, you, there is a question, is there a God? Okay. So now what do we, de- de- uh, mean by a divine entity? Very often we mean some, some entity that can create life that can create the universe and, you know, as sufficiently advanced technological civilizations, they can do that. Uh, I mean, we are almost at the point right now, only a century into our scientific development where we create synthetic life in the laboratory almost. So just think about a civilization that had technology, technological development for a, a, a thousand years or a million years. They might be able to do everything that we assign to what we call God. And, uh, you know, it would look like magic to us. They can do it. Uh, so they may be it. That's what I'm saying. Aliens might be God. Is that what you're saying? Well, they might be an approximation to God. But I should tell you, speaking about that. The- sounds more
1: like Q from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I mean, it's real. Just think about how we would look to a caveman, right? So we would look like godly uh, in terms of our abilities to do things. And
2: Well, Rain uh, would look like a caveman.
3: I so. should tell you that a few months ago, there was um, I was contacted by a magazine in uh, uh, Brooklyn uh, called Ami of, of the Orthodox community. And they wanted to do a cover story about my book, about uh, what we are discussing. And uh, then uh, a colleague of mine from Harvard, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, who saw the story said, it looks like the Orthodox are more open-minded to the possibility <laughs> that extraterrestrial exists than your colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> right. Uh, and, and the other thing I should say that is that when I spoke with uh, religious people, many of them say, in, in, irrespective of the religion, I had a Muslim uh, woman actually send me an email this morning she was saying that she was fascinated by the content of my book and that she report you know she wrote a a review of the book um and she's an assistant professor at some university um and uh, in all religions i hear people that uh, say that it's it doesn't pose a problem for them in terms of their belief and uh, you know that that is interesting i i don't think it's necessarily in conflict If you go a few uh, centuries back, it was in conflict with religion because there was a guy named Giordano Bruno. You may have heard about him. uh, And he argued, you know, the other stars that we see in the sky, he said, you know, they might be like the sun. And uh, therefore, they might have a planet like the earth. Therefore, there might be life on them. And then he was burnt at the stake for saying Mm. that. Now People didn't like him but um, aside from his yeah he was an asshole but still uh, yeah he was a very abrasive person but <laughs> but aside from that the issue was really for the clergy the issue was that um, they believed that um, uh, you know uh, when people sinned that uh, jesus would come and save them ultimately and therefore if there is there are other people on other planets then you have to have christ go there and you basically need Duplic- copies of Christ, visiting all these other planets. And that was too complicated for them to imagine billions of copies of Christ going to all these different planets at different times and 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 doing what, you know, saving those other beings from their sin. And so that's why they burned Giordano Bruno, you know. And uh, uh, so there was a problem to some people in the past, you know, in terms of their religious belief, but I don't think it's necessarily the case now. Uh, based on what I hear from religious people, and yeah. I think it would be really fascinating for us to realize that you know we have brothers and sisters out there.
2: Yeah, and I think I think that um, slowly our collective consciousness is changing that way. You know, I've I've noticed just even in the last decade or so, uh, the idea that. We're not alone in the universe has become almost kind of prosaic and and accepted. You know, it's become it's become mundane, except among scientists. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that's they're the next one to come. Uh, Professor Loeb, thank you so much for coming on the on the program. It's now time for a lightning round. We're
1: gonna ask you a series of super quick, uh, but sometimes profound questions. We just want to get your first response. The first idea, thought, gut feeling that comes to your lips, uh, just let it out and let us get to know you a little bit
2: better. If you could yourself colonize Mars, would you? Not colonize,
3: but go there. Yes, I would go there.
2: Well, it's not a return trip, Professor. Like, that's, it's, it's a one-way trip.
3: Yeah, but, uh, you know, I enjoy going uh, exploring nature that was not uh, spoiled by people. And to me, <laughs> right. uh, space is that kind of... Uh, realm. And, uh, you know, I live not far from where Henry Thoreau went to Walden Pond for a year and uh, out of uh, city life and, um, you know, preached for going back to nature. And I f- feel the same way about, you know, going to space because we pretty much spoiled everything on earth by now. Okay.
1: If Hollywood is making a biopic about your life, what would it be called and who would play you?
3: Brad Pitt will play me based on uh, my <laughs> wife's preference. And um Um, it will be called um, The Wonder of Avilo. What about, I got an alternative title, Frontal Lobe.
2: (laughs) If you could trade places with anyone in the world, who would it be?
3: I would trade uh, with someone that uh, will go to space, uh, an astronaut, uh, uh, but not on the mission of uh, uh, Branson or or Bezos, (laughs) you know, because... They basically just lifted their body by 1% of the Earth radius. That's not very impressive.
2: They they weren't even in space, were they? That's not technically space.
3: And I should say, you know, showing off in space is an oxymoron because space is vast. You can't be bragging about going at 1% (laughs) of the Earth radius. The universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the Earth radius.
1: What's one skill you wish you had? Uh, Playing music. Mm.
2: What's one thing you would change about yourself?
3: Uh, Being... uh, perhaps uh, better understood. uh, Maybe if I can convince and get into the skin of other people so that I can make my argument not the way I see them, but the way they see them. What's one book that changed your life? Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. um, uh, One of his books um, uh, definitely uh, changed my life uh, on existentialism.
2: What's one thing that most people like, but you hate.
3: Yeah, uh, uh, being loud in a social occasion. Uh, And uh, I should say the first day in school, which I mentioned in my book, you know, I I came to the room, uh, the classroom, and all the students were jumping up and down. And I was looking at them trying to figure out, why are they doing that? And then the the teacher came in and said to everyone, look at Avi, how well-behaved he is. Why can't you all be like him? And I wanted to explain to her, I'm not well-behaved. I'm just trying to figure out why they're jumping. And I couldn't figure it out. That's why I didn't jump myself. That's a metaphor for my career. So <laughs> Right. Okay. You have your
1: shirt off, your torso is oiled up, and you're facing an oiled Carl
2: Sagan in a wrestling match. Who wins? I win. And then finally, Professor Loeb, uh, what is your life's biggest, big question?
3: Are we the smartest kid on the block? That's a very simple question, and it follows on the experience with my daughters that they, when they went to the kindergarten.
2: Jesus Christ, I hope we're not the smartest.
3: One reason I seek intelligence in space is because I don't often find it here on Earth. Professor Loeb, this has been an honor and a
1: pleasure. And uh, everyone, please check out his amazing book, Extraterrestrial. Extraterrestrial. It's fantastic. Thank you for coming on Metaphysical Milkshake.
3: Thank you for having me. It was a, a great honor and pleasure. Fascinating! Wow, yeah, that was so cool.
2: And you know, the thing is, is like you, you, you have no choice but to take him seriously because he's like a legit scientist. You know, he's not like a TV scientist.
1: We dug into his bio a little bit early on, but the number of papers he's published, like the esteem in which he's held, uh, really, really incredible. And boy, I, you know, I had never. I've considered a lot of life's biggest questions before, and as a sci-fi nerd, I certainly have thought about extraterrestrials, but I hadn't really sat with that question of like, if something, let's say, was floating by and we went up and we landed on it and it had alien technology and language and stuff we'd never seen before, it was irrefutably alien, what would that mean to humanity, to every person on this planet? And it, you know, and that, and that puts the whole question—one that we wrestle with a lot and talk about a lot—this question of of God. Mm-hmm. Um, it puts it in a different light. It doesn't necessarily say, "Oh, we see alien tech, therefore there is a God." But you know, it is—it's belief in something kind of bigger and larger out there. It's a stepping stone toward some kind of larger question floating in the ether?
2: Yeah, like part of me believes that it would change everything, right? It would change theology. It would change philosophy. It would change how we see ourselves as individuals um, and as part of a a, a a single human species. You know, maybe it would, you know, make religions crumble or our belief systems transform. But then part of me looks back on history and these other sort of great profound moments, you know, discovering that the earth is not the center of the universe, right? I mean, that's unquestionably what uh, the Hebrew scriptures say. And yet Hmm. when we discovered that wasn't the case, it's not like, you know, Christianity and Judaism just went away. They just simply absorbed that information and kept going, right? That's why part of me feels like, it's true what you guys were saying about how, you know, if we had if we had definitive proof of alien life, man, you know, it would force us to change everything. And part of me thinks, maybe, part of me also thinks, yeah, I've had a lot of times in my, uh, you know, 30 years of living in this world. I'm 32 for 30, 31 for pe- people who, who don't know. Yes, um, yes, you are. And... There have been many, many moments of nothing will ever be the same after this again, until the following weekend when everything will be yeah. exactly the same again. Um, well, I
1: kind of, I kind of <laughs> feel like it's that way with climate change. Like climate change is kind of irrefutable. What's changed? Look outside. Nothing. You and I talk about this changed. all the
2: time. In fact, we 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 had a, an amazing conversation with Elizabeth Colbert. Please go back and listen to that episode, folks, uh, in which we were like, maybe what we need is that big, gigantic, catastrophic thing before people start taking it seriously. And we have one of those every weekend.
1: I know. Fire tornadoes.
2: <laughs> We've got fire tornadoes Fire now. tornadoes!
1: Well, not to mention that the June report from the U.S. government, with all that video footage and uh, all those testimonies of these, like, died in the wool conservative military pilots, like, w- w- we have the proof. The proof is yeah. there. But... Let's be let's be a little more hopeful. All right. Let's be a little more hopeful. Let, let's dream a little bit. Does 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 proof of alien life, Reza, for you, does that lead to God? Does that tiptoe
2: down the divine path? It doesn't really change my spirituality because my spirituality isn't um confined to this kind of anthropocentric idea, you know, that like we humans are the reason that God exists. Like, if that's what you believe, if you're the kind of spiritual person who believes that, you know, uh, proof of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence disproves God, well, then I've got a problem with your view of God, right? Because if your God God is a solar system God... Is contingent. (laughs) Yes. My God only controls this particular solar system, but not any other solar system... You know, that's your problem. But I also, you know, I also recognize that we sometimes give religion kind of short shrift when we talk about these things. The truth of the matter is that, you know, most religions uh, and religious people are are eminently open to these ideas, right? Pope Francis made headlines when he said that he would baptize Martians, right? <laughs> If Martians suddenly show up, the Pope was like, well, sure, I'd baptize them. No problem.
1: Take me to your leader. We (laughs) believe in Jesus and accept him as our Lord and Savior.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Avi Loeb talked about how uh, Orthodox Jews even, you know, uh, love his book and, and have a concept of the notion that the universe is populated with infinite amounts of life forms and that, you know, that the God would be the same god to all of those things. Islam has a similar view, right? There's a there's a great um verse in the Quran that says all things in the heavens um are uh Allah's. That it, it, you know, so implying that notion that god's rule extends way beyond just this one planet. Mm-hmm. And I mean the bahai's feel the same, don't they?
1: Yeah, there's there's tons of bahai quotes actually literally about this very topic. I mean it and it doesn't It doesn't skirt around the issue. Bahá'u'lláh, the founder of the Baha'i faith, says, Verily I say, the creation of God embraceth worlds besides this world and creatures apart from these creatures.
2: Yes. So in a way, it's not, you know, I think a lot of people would think that the religious people are the ones who would be most, uh, you know, uh, against the idea of extraterrestrial intelligence. But talking to Avi Loeb, (laughs) It seems like scientists, most scientists are seem to be more against that idea or even the possibility of, of being open to that idea uh, than yeah. religious people are. Anyway, it's all very fascinating. Bottom line, anything that promotes inhumanity,
1: wonder, mystery, humility, awe, uh, sacredness, and anything that can possibly unite us just a little bit more and show us that we're a species on a planet and that we have a mission uh, to seek out strange new life and new civilizations to boldly go where no human has gone before. Um, Anything that brings us
2: closer, essentially, Reza, to Star Trek is a good thing. What do you guys think, people? Are we alone in the universe? Do you believe that there are signs of extraterrestrial life all around us that we've already seen the evidence we just haven't you know accepted it what would it mean what does it mean to you personally i don't mean like on the human or global scale i mean you you listener what would it mean to you to know with definitive proof uh that we are not Alone in the universe. Let us know. We want to hear from you. You can find us on socials at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson on on Twitter. You can find us at Metamilk Podcast, and we're on Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know what you think about this. Are we alone in the universe?
1: And let us know whatever your life's biggest questions are. We might explore them on future episodes, and we might even interview you on future episodes.
2: We have a uh, a great listener and fan who is joining us from Calgary, Canada, Blair Ellistat. What's up, Blair?
0: You know how we're always kind of you know thinking about what's coming next in terms of a big, major world conflict, like a, a world war mm-hmm. or cyber terrorism or that sort of thing. Like we're all kind of afraid of what's coming next. And so many things have happened historically, and uh, you know, recently, of course, we've had the pandemic, and you know, we're all getting through that, but. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys about the thought of um, how maybe there won't actually be something tangible like a world war happening that will be the next major conflict that we're facing. I think it's going to be more of an internal struggle. Um, you know as uh, society is dealing with um, you know trying to sift through and sort through all the endless tsunami of misinformation that we're receiving on a daily basis with social media, all the political partisanship, uh, polarity between parties. Everybody's finding something else to believe in. QAnon and all that. And it's I'm kind of witnessing just uh, a major collapse uh, mentally, with with people not really knowing what to believe in. And I wonder if that's kind of the next major struggle that we're facing as uh you know as as people uh, as a society, like a more of an internal thing that we we're all gonna have to work through. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that.
1: You know, all these movies that are like post-apocalyptic and it's always about a zombie invasion or a nuclear war or or a comet hitting earth or some external force. You're saying, hey, maybe that's not what's going to happen. Maybe we are imploding from the inside. You know, maybe it's mm-hmm. it's a mental health epidemic. and it's a conspiracy epidemic. and it's 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 kind of a, a cancer creeping up from within. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it because you certainly see both of those things happening at the same time. You're
2: definitely tapping into, you know, a, a very real um, issue that I think people aren't talking about enough. I mean, look, the post World War II um, era was all about creating these interdependent relationships between nations that would make such a war uh, no longer feasible, right? the idea that we would ever have a world war again like that's just not in the cards the the, the our the economy is so globalized and we are so dependent on each other there's never going to be a war between america and china no matter what we say you know because both of our economies would destroy we buy all our stuff from china they make all our stuff for the, for uh, us so um but what that has done in a very interesting way to, to the point that you were making is that by removing the sort of external threat, the external enemy, right, in this new, you know, we used, in the 80s, we were in this bipolar world. So it was very easy to be like, you're either on the side of America or you're on the side of the Soviet Union. But now we're in this kind of multipolar world, right, where you can't really in any clear sense rally everyone to some external enemy any longer. And so where do we find that enemy now? Internally, right? We find the enemy within. Because I think to me, part of like the human condition is that we define ourselves most easily in opposition to another, right? I say this all the time. Rain gets so sick and tired of, of hearing it, but it's very, very hard to say what you are it's very easy to say what you aren't, right? You just pick something and you're like, I'm not that and I'm not that. Well, it you know, when it was like Nazis <laughs> and communists, that was easy. But now that they're gone, all we do is look at each other now, right? And so part of, I think, the polarization and the anger and the demonization and the rise of these, like, as you were saying, these fucking QAnon craziness yeah. is all about, trying to find some easy way to define ourselves without an external enemy and instead looking to an internal enemy. I think I think, yeah, you're, you're, it's, a, it's a really smart observation.
1: I think that we have always had some really clear strictures and guidelines that have driven Western culture. And there has been incredible clarity, like let's conquer the West. And we have you know manifest destiny and the american dream and we're the we're the number one power in the world and um the list goes on and on and now all of that stuff is kind of falling apart so just like reza said and i think and uh, i never get tired of hearing you say it reza quite honestly because it's like who are we we have to redefine who we are in the world who are we what are we about um not Manifest destiny is not going to work anymore. The American dream is not going to work anymore. Increased profit year after year is not going to work anymore. Manufacturing um, in a country where people get $20 an hour is not going to work anymore. Like all of these kind of foundational elements of uh, especially Western and and Canadian civilization um, are, are crumbling. And we're facing the ashes and we have to rebuild, redefine who we are and what we're about. Obviously, you know we know some of those answers. It's community, mm-hmm. it's consultation, it's generosity, it's selflessness instead of selfishness, and and it's um and it's an it's an atmosphere of generosity rather than consumerism. Um, we could go on and on, but we're we're going to. I really feel like humanity is in its turbulent adolescence. And this particular seventeen-year-old is one of those ones and we all have them in the family that is going to fall flat on their face, you know, addicted to smoking the rock and is need to going to need to be hauled off to rehab. Um, well,
2: wow, your seventeen was way different than my seventeen, but go on. Yeah, that go
1: wasn't on. My, that wasn't me. I'm just saying we all have someone in our family that uh, <laughs> that that, that, yeah. that underwent that, and that's what humanity is going to have to do to come out on the other side.
2: I think it's necessary. I th- and I and I, you know. Heaven forbid, I'm I feel kind of optimistic at what could come out of this. You know, I feel like look, we're we're in this incredible moment of transition. And as a race, as a human race, and as, you know, uh uh, you know, especially in the the sort of wealthy uh global north. Um and uh, you know, it's what we've got is unsustainable. And maybe it'll take some kind of cataclysm either of our own making or of, you know, uh, a climate cataclysm. But we, we, we're going to have to break this shit if we're going to put it back together again to make it through this century. So I'm, I'm not all that pessimistic about what's happening right now. I think in the end, uh, it's kind of a necessary thing.
0: I, I, I don't know how it's going to be resolved, but uh, I, maybe it's not uh, as bad as I, I think it is not like i'm terrified in the direction that we're going but i I just i'm noticing how different things are now and everybody's expecting history to repeat itself i I don't think that it will i think we're facing new challenges Mm -hmm. now and uh we're gonna have to learn how to adapt and uh you know sort through those in in a in a way that we've never had to before but uh, thank you for those answers those were fantastic and i really appreciate the time
2: And if you like Blair, have some big question. If you like Blair. If you like Blair. If you, comma, like Blair. Thank you. You can uh, go to Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us. uh, Write your question uh, in the comments and uh, maybe we'll bring you on. And and you can have the magical experience that Blair Elstad from Calgary, Canada just had. Subscribe to Metaphysical Milkshake
1: on our YouTube channel. And then you can watch our incredibly beautiful faces, my big, round, weird, old face talking at you week in and week out. We're so happy to have you listening. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.
2: Live long and prosper, everybody. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold, audio mixed by Joshua Harris. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang.
3: Uh, how many podcasts have you done in the last year? No, in the last seven months, I had uh, 1,200 interviews, out of which I would say about uh, half are podcasts. Where does ours rank? Near the top. Oh, uh, near, near the top. The top.
1: Okay, near is good. Near, near is good.
3: Uh, I would say at the top uh, 1%. Oh, nice. That's pretty good.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call